The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. I'm going to start today in verse 31. Remember, Jesus is in the upper room. He is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. Judas has been dismissed. Then picking up in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Judas leaves, verses 29 and 30, and now Jesus is alone with the believing disciples, the true disciples. And it's really time for him to get to business, for him to speak to them what's on his heart. And he says something incredibly profound. Think about this. He's looking forward to the cross. He's looking forward to his passion. He's looking forward to, in just a few hours, going to Gethsemane and being betrayed and then being beaten and then being mistried and then going to Golgotha. All of that is in perspective, but he says something that I find very astonishing, something that maybe the disciples thought was incredible. Look what he says in verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now, in this moment, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. So, looking at the cross a place of shame and ignominy. The cross is where you would be crucified naked. And you remember Jesus was mocked as people passed by on the road. Jesus looking at the cross, the thing that Jews was a stumbling block, the place that was a folly to Greeks, Paul says, Jesus says is a place of glory the place where God is glorified. When Jesus looks at the cross, he sees the glory of God. Now, much of evangelical Christianity, when you think about the cross, when much of evangelical Christianity thinks about the cross, the first thing that comes to mind is what? Us. Us. That the cross is ultimately 
about us. That, would you say that that's a fair assessment? Because so much of Christianity today is man-centered. It's Christianity that puts man as the central focus of Christianity, that God essentially exists for you, that God exists to make your life great. That's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. That's the message that sells. People want that pat on the back. You know, God puts me at the center of all that he does and all that he is. Now, certainly, hear me very clearly. God thought of you at the cross. And if you are one of God's children, God loves you with an infinite love, an insurmountable love. Hear me clearly say that. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. He loves his sheep. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, God loves us infinitely and God thinks of us at the cross. But... That is not the highest goal of the cross. The highest goal of the cross was the glory of God. And that, that distinction is so important to understand. That distinction is so important to focus on. That distinction is what Jesus focuses on. He says, look, this moment, this moment of redemption is the moment of my glory where you will see my character, where I will accomplish the, the greatest feats that I will ever accomplish throughout my ministry. And make no mistake, what God is focused on most in this world is his own glory, his honor. Jot this verse down, Romans eleven thirty six. Memorize this verse. Think about this verse. Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All things are ultimately for his glory. Yes, our redemption is important, but the redemption, Paul says in Ephesians 1, is for the praise of the glory of his grace. Redemption is, is, is the roadmap to the end game of his glory. I want to show you this. Turn real quickly with me to John chapter 17. This is, you might say, the Lord's prayer or the high priestly prayer. It's where the Lord is praying for us. And I just want you to see this focus in the heart of our Lord. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you, the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Yes, redemption is part of that work, but Jesus is saying that is part of the big piece of God's glory. Look at verse 5, the next verse. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In other words, the people that we are redeeming, we will be glorified and worshiped by them. Then look at verse 24. Father, this is, this is the end game of redemption in heaven. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Where's he talking about? He's talking about that they will be one day with me in heaven 
to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And you remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, 23. He says that the Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. If you would, turn back to to John 13. So this is an important distinction to make, to understand the chief purpose of the cross. And it's important for us to think about for these reasons. One, Jesus makes a big deal about this. This was important to Jesus. This is on his heart, that the cross be seen as the display of the glory of God. Second, we need to emphasize this, is because God's glory is at stake. We live in a dark age of Christianity. We live in a dark age of Christianity in which God's glory and honor has largely been eclipsed, where we use Christianese language, but the fear of God is not to be found in many places, where the glimpse of God and His holiness is not appreciated. And so we need to emphasize the fact that God's glory is supremely valuable. And then third, and this is so important for you to understand, at this, our joy is at stake. Man-centered Christianity sounds really good until you go through a valley. Because when your eyes are on you, you are not able to help yourself. And you make a phony God. You make a pitiful God for yourself. God wired you to see him and to be satisfied. All the pleasures that God designed you for are found in God and at his right hand. That's Psalm 1611. So God designed you to worship him and find your joy in God. And at the cross, this is what we're going to talk about today, you are to see God's infinite beauty and and marvelous character, and you are to walk away stunned and to be satisfied. Do you know what will sustain you on your deathbed? Is a big view of God, not a big view of yourself. You need a big view of God right? And that's what Jesus is helping us understand. Let me give you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, quote, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified. So your happiness rises the bigger your view of God is and the more that you worship him. So as we look at the cross and think about the cross this morning, Think about how great and wonderful Christ is and how great and wonderful the Father is because all of that is on display. Right next to John 13, 31 in the margin of your Bible, the Son's glory. Write the Son's glory because that's what Christ talks about first. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That phrase, Son of Man, speaks to the incarnation to this apocalyptic figure of Daniel 7, this God-man who will come at the end of days. It speaks to the Messiah. It speaks to Christ's work as a true man, true God. 
John says in John 1.14, in the Word, talking about Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus says that the cross will be His shining moment. It will be His great hour of glory. What does He mean by this? Have you ever been in a situation where you know somebody pretty well, but then you watch them go through a trial or a difficulty, and you watch them respond, and the way that they respond in that situation makes you appreciate them all the more, where you see something that you didn't even know was there, and you're like, wow, that was that was a marvelous display of perseverance or whatever it was. We had this event in recruit training as the Marine recruits would go through the 12, 13-week process. The final culminating event was called the crucible. The crucible. It's like they stole it. The Marine Corps stole it from Christianity. But the, the crucible was a 72-hour event where they got little food, little sleep, all these challenges, and what you were watching is for the, the Marine recruits to rise to the occasion. You were, this was their moment of greatest challenge, but yet it was really their, their moment of glory. And then we would t- march them back to the parade deck, and they would get their eagle globe and anchor pinned on their collar at that moment. It's often those moments of trial, those moments of suffering, those moments of difficulty where somebody emerges as a hero. Y'all remember Michael Jordan, the flu game? Does anybody remember this? Utah Jazz, 1997, Michael Jordan has the flu, wins the game. It's these moments of trial where all of a sudden somebody's character is just broadcast. Or Tom Brady, uh, 28 points down to the Falcons and coming back, you see their character on display. All of those pale in comparison to what Christ accomplished. But, But that's the idea, is that through this trial, through His passion, you will see His shining glory. And here's what he did. First thing I want you to, to think about in terms of Christ's glory on the, on the cross is he accomplished redemption for his people. Jot down these verses. Galatians 2.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The cross is where Jesus redeemed us from the curse of sin. It's where he gave himself as a ransom for us. Jesus accomplished at the cross the most marvelous thing that's ever been accomplished, and that's a way for you to go to heaven, for you to be redeemed from your sin. The cross in the ancient world was a symbol of the deepest shame. The cross is where you pierced criminals and rapists and insurrectionists. And I was thinking about this, you know, today, like down in Texas, it's popular for women to take different types of crosses and put them on their walls 
as decorations. We take crosses and hang them from chains from our necks. What happened there with the cross? Well, the cross in Christ's crucifixion switched. It became inverted. It became, it went from being a place of shame to a place of glory. Because if you truly know Christ and you are forgiven, you glory in the cross, don't you? You love the cross. You, you cherish the cross. You praise the cross because it's where Christ accomplished your redemption for you. Grace Ann and I just recently uh, went back to, well, I guess you weren't there with me. It was just me and the boys who went back. I love you so much, I just take you wherever I go. <laughs> my favorite place my favorite place on campus, I know I've mentioned this before, it's where I used to go study when I was a freshman and sophomore to get away from the upperclassmen in the core. But I'd go into the uh, into Rudder Tower there on campus. It's where the, the big um, play hall is. And outside the play hall is this big mural. And at the center of the mural is the cross of Christ. And as I was uh, a freshman and sophomore, I always used to wonder, man, how long are they going to keep this here? You know, secular university, how long are they going to keep it here? So when I was back on campus, guess where I went? I went back to see if the mural was still there. Guess what? Still there. Cross at the center. And, and that's, the, that's the idea, is if you are a Christian, you glory in the cross, you love the cross. It's at the cross, secondly, where Christ defeated Satan where Christ defeated Satan. And I did a whole sermon on this a couple months ago. But you remember John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. At the cross, Christ took away Satan's accusation against the forgiven, against the saints, because now Satan can no longer say their sin has not been paid for. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus crushed Satan's head at the cross. Third, Jesus demonstrated the weightiness of God through his perfect obedience at the cross. Think about this. The, the first Adam, Adam, failed to obey God. Israel, in their entire history, had failed to obey God. But Christ, the final Adam, the representative of Israel, comes and perfectly obeys God. This is Jesus, John 14, 31. This is what he's going to say in the next chapter. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He perfectly obeyed God the Father in every aspect of his life. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 5, 8, jot down that verse. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, he, he obeyed through the final moment of his suffering. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, Jesus was always perfect, but Jesus proved his perfection through his righteous obedience all the way to the end. Do you remember the test that God gave to Abraham? You remember Abraham was given the son Isaac, who was the child of promise, and God tested him. God said, I want, you, I want to see if you are truly going to be faithful to me. And he had Abraham take Isaac, carrying wood, up Mount Moriah, which is, by the way, where 
Golgotha is, where Calvary is. And he said, I want you to take him up there, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham took him up to Mount Moriah, built an altar, had Isaac get up on the altar. He lifted up the knife, and God said, not so fast. There's a lamb right there in the thicket. Take the lamb. But the point being is Abraham obeyed God. Now, Christ did the same exact thing, except he lifted and dropped the knife on himself. Think about that. He obeyed perfectly to the end, and in doing so, he demonstrated the weightiness of who God is. He showed that God is worthy of perfect obedience. Now, right next to verse 31, right below the Son's glory, right in the margin of your Bible, the Father's glory, the Father's glory. Because at the cross, it's not just the Son who is glorified, it's also God the Father who is glorified. Look at that phrase right there at the end of verse 31, and God is glorified in Him. And this is clearly a reference to God the Father. God the Father is also glorified at the cross. The Son's victory is seen, and the character of God the Father is also seen. And what I want you to know and understand, these are verses from, from throughout the, the, the Scriptures that speaks to God's glory at the cross. But I want you to see first that the cross demonstrates the Father's love. The cross shows the Father's love, which is an aspect of His character, which all points to His glory. You know the verse, John 3.16. You might have even tattooed it on your back at some point. You see that. And you ask people, what does that verse say? And they're like, I don't know, man. You know, I just, you know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, if you ever doubt God's love, is the living proof of God's love for sinners. And by the way, you don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve God's love. None of us deserve God's love. That's Paul's point. If you keep reading in Romans chapter 5, he says that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died while we were enemies of God. Christ died while we were still sinners. It's, the cross isn't a demonstration of your worth. The cross is, demonstrate, is a demonstration of God's infinite love, that He loved us despite our sinful state. My grand, Grandpa Castleberry's uh, favorite hymn was the love of God. And he especially liked the, the final verse, which says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every one ascribed by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The Father's love is infinitely deep. It's deeper than the dark chasms of space. You will be in heaven and know God for all of eternity and never exhausted one one-hundredth of His love. It's infinitely deep. 
in that scene at the cross. Second, the, Christ demon, the cross demonstrates the Father's righteousness. Now, righteousness is, is the expression of God's holy rule. It's an attribute of God. You see, God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God rules the universe rightly and justly. No sin in the final analysis on the last day will just be wiped under the rug. I sometimes talk to people and they say, you know, when I get to heaven, I just hope that, that God will forgive me. Have you ever heard that before? I just hope that God will forgive me. Uh, there, there's a, a country singer named Pat Green, and he has this song I used to listen to it quite a bit growing up, and he said, I can't change, and it might be a sin. I just hope St. Pete is going to let me in. Come on, Pete, let me in. That's how many people view God. You know, God's a loving God. God's a forgiving God. I'm a pretty good person. I'm an American, by goodness. So God's certainly going to let me in. But friends, God is a righteous God, and every sin must be punished, and it must either be punished at the cross or in hell. So if you are not under the shadow of the cross, you will pay for that sin in hell, and that is the truth of the matter. God is a just God, and it is at the cross that God's justice and righteousness is displayed. Jot down this verse, Romans 3.25. Paul says the cross shows God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, throughout the Old Testament, whether it be Moses or Joseph or whoever, God had granted them forgiveness. And the devil could say, how can you forgive that person because they have sinned against you, they have broken your laws? Well, the reckoning point is at the cross where God poured out on the Son the sins of Adam and Seth and Methuselah and Moses and David and Joseph and all of these Old Testament saints, and by the way, all of your sin, if you're in Christ. The worst of your sins, all of it, he poured out on Christ at the cross. The cross is the demonstration that God is just. Third, the cross also demonstrates the Father's holiness. You know, there's one attribute of God that the angels cry out again and again in, in heaven, and it is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This attribute of God speaks, speaks to God's distinction, God's separateness from us, that there is no one like God. God is pure. God is distinct. God is separate. And we really have no idea what true purity is because our entire existence has been that of sin and impurity. But God is so pure that as the Son was taking on our sin penalty as the sinless sin bearer, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was as if God the Father could not even look at the Son while he was that curse for sin, because he is so holy. And then fourth, the cross demonstrates the Father's faithfulness. The cross demonstrates the Father's faithfulness. God had promised 
in the very beginning, you remember Genesis 3.15, right after the curse, God had told the woman, he said, there will be a seed from the woman. Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. That promise was made all the way back in the beginning. And God keeps his promises because he is a faithful God. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God promised that he would crush Satan's head. And he did. God keeps his promises. God is faithful. And the cross is the proof that God always stands good on his promises. And guess what? Here's another promise. Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's another promise for you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God says if you call upon him and cry out to him and repent of your self-righteousness and your sin, and you say, I need Christ as my sin pair. Help me, God. I need your salvation. God says if you will humble yourself and cry out to him, that he promises that he will save you. So you can know right now today that you will stand in heaven for eternity because he is faithful. You can take that to the bank. Martin Luther, I'm going to give you a quote from Luther. I want you to think about this. He said, quote, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. One deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. What he's saying is, is if you just look at creation, right? We, we can look at creation and see things about God. We can see that God is all-powerful. We can see that God is creator. We can see that God is outside of time. There's numerous things we can see that, that creation itself testifies about God, but if we stop there, we won't know God truly, will we? We won't know God's mercy and His love and His grace. So you have to go further than merely creation. You have to go to the cross, Luther said, to truly understand and know who God is. Well, look at verse 32. Verse 32 is a summary statement of what really what he has said in verse 31. Jesus says, if God the Father is glorified in him, in the Son, God will also glorify him in himself. Really, what he's saying is that the Father's glory and the Son's glory is the same glory because they are both God, different persons of the Trinity. And he says, and he will glorify him at once. And again, this is speaking to the events of the cross and this coming glory that will transpire and take place. Now, look at verse 33. And right next to verse 33 in the margin, the son's mission. The son's mission. So we've seen the son's glory, the father's glory, and now the son's mission. Jesus now shares with his disciples how this will be accomplished. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Literally just a few more hours. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I want to say something just very briefly about this word, children, technoi. That word is only used to describe the believer in John's gospel and then in, the, in John's epistles. Not everyone is a child of God. That designation, that term, child of God, is a term used to describe those who trust in Christ, are born again, and have the right to be called his children. Let me give you a couple cross-references. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right then to become children of God. 1 John 1.12 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. So this terminology, children, is a terminology that Jesus can use with the eleven. He didn't use it when Judas was there. It's a term that he's using to describe his born-again disciples. And he says, I want you to know something, something very important. I am about to embark on this mission, and you cannot follow me. Just as I told the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's saying to them, look, I'm about to go through this passion. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to go to the resurrection. I'm about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. I'm about to go to heaven. And in all these things, you can't be my sidekicks anymore. It's just going to be me. Christianity will not be founded by Christ and the 11 that are left. It will be founded by Christ in Christ alone. Jesus will say a couple chapters later in John 16, 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, real quick, I want you to turn to Hebrews, and I just want to stress this point by having you think about what Christ is about to accomplish in the cross, the writer of Hebrews says, and this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, talking about his deity, in bringing many sons to glory, that's talking about his redemption and bringing us to heaven, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, notice that word founder. It's the Greek word archegos, which you could translate as pioneer or the foremost one or the first one. It speaks to the fact that Christ is the pioneer of our salvation, the founder of our salvation. He is the one that went to the cross, that went to the tomb, that ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and no one else did. You think about the great pioneers of history. You think about Columbus discovering the new world. You think about Lewis and Clark, who traveled along the Missouri River and then to the Columbia River all the way to the Pacific Ocean, you think about Alan Shepard pioneering the way into space, or Armstrong and Aldrin 
landing on the moon and Collins circling in the orbital rotation. But here's the thing with those guys. If they didn't do it, somebody else would have, right? If it weren't them, somebody else would have done it. Christ accomplished something nobody else could. As the true man, as our representative, he's the only one in history qualified to pay the penalty for your sins. As a true man, he went to the tomb and he conquered death. And as a true man, he pioneered the way to heaven and he opened heaven's gates. And nobody could do that with him. He is the true and ultimate pioneer and founder. And if you jot down Hebrews 12 too, the writer of Hebrews uses this word archagos again. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ's mission was something that he and only he could accomplish, and he did it. He did it. And that's why Jesus is the only way to God. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only archagos, the only pioneer, and he completes this mission on our behalf. Now, if you would turn back to John 13, and right next to verse 34, the disciples' mission. So that's Christ's mission. Christ is going to accomplish our salvation. He is going to ascend to the heights of heaven where he will prepare a place for us. He does it all. And this is what Christ then says to the disciples that they are to do. This is the disciples' mission. And by the way, this is our mission, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So Jesus says, this is your commandment. This is your marching orders. You are to love one another. People often ask, well, how is this new? Didn't in the Old Testament, didn't the Old Testament law say that you are to love, your, love God and love your neighbor. Didn't Jesus summarize the Old Testament law saying, love God, love neighbor? So how is this a new commandment? Well, let me give you three reasons why it's a new commandment. It's new because it is part and partial with the new covenant. The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, passed away. It's no more. There's no more Old Testament feasts, Sabbaths. There's no more... Uh, of the ceremonial sacrificial law, it's all done. We're under the law of Christ in the new covenant. And part of this law of Christ, Jesus says, is to love agapao one another. It's a new covenant command. Second reason why it's new. Because Christ is the model of this love. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. Before Christ came, there wasn't this picture of this sacrificial servant giving himself for his people. So Christ is this picture of love, and Jesus says, you are to love others just as I have loved you. Christ is the model. And third reason it's new is notice that last phrase at the end of verse 34. You are to love one another. Now that one another specifically refers to other believers. Yes, 
you are to love your enemies. Yes, you are to love the lost. You are to love the people in the world. But Christ says, this is the commandment. You are to love one another. You are to love other believers. We are to love sacrificially with a servant-hearted, agapao love, the way that Christ has loved us. Look at verse 35. He says, this is the test. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this, Jesus says, going forward in the future, will be the supreme mark by which the church is to be known. The church will be known by her love for one another. The church is not to be primarily known for doctrine, though she should be orthodox. The church is not to be primarily known for outreach, though she should be evangelistic. The church is not to be primarily known for preaching, though the word should be faithfully proclaimed. The church is to be primarily known, Jesus says, for its love. Here's a a quote from A.W. Pink. He said, quote, love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It is not knowledge, nor orthodoxy, nor fleshly activities, but supremely love, which identifies a follower of the Lord Jesus. As the disciples of the Pharisees were known by their phylacteries, as the disciples of John were known by their baptism, and every school by its particular shibboleth, so the mark of a true Christian is love, and that a genuine active love, not in words, but in deeds. So this church, Capital Community Church, and every faithful church should be known and exhibit this love of Christ, this agapao love, and that should be our defining mark. Yes, we want to be faithful to the truth. My goodness, yes. Till Christ comes home, this church, Lord willing, will be a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Christ. But we must be known chiefly by our love. We don't want dead orthodoxy. Where you say, well, we got the truth so we can be mean. No, it's not it. Jesus says, it's truth and love. You will be known by your love. I was part of a wonderful church growing up, an absolutely wonderful church. And the church thrived under the preaching of the Word of God, and the church was faithful, and the church was wonderful, and families flourished, and people were coming to know the Lord through this church. It was, it was a work of God that was taking place. And then the senior pastor announced his retirement, and the church, through just a series of unfortunate, really catastrophic events, fumbled the handoff in terms of leadership. And what happened over the next few years in the life of this church, this church that I loved, is that Christians became angry with one another. And Christians fought over the direction of the church. And Christians began to leave the church. And Christians began to lob accusations against one another. And before long, there was division. And there was anger and wrath towards one another. And the church lost its way. When I was back in Dallas a few years ago, I stopped by that church. I wanted to see what was going on there. And I walked in the church. The receptionist 
she didn't recognize me. You know, she, I think she, I came off the road. She's like, what are you doing here? You know, and, but I walked in the church and I saw the pastor climbing down from the roof trying to fix the air conditioner. You know when the pastor's up on the roof trying to fix the air conditioner, things are not going well. And a couple years later, the church shut its doors. It closed down. They lost their way. I don't want this church to lose its way. The love of Christ is her model. You will be offended at this church. I promise you. If you start serving, there's, there's tension. There's, you, know, you, you encounter difficulty. Somebody's going to say something to you. Don't let a root of bitterness grow in your heart. Has Christ forgiven you? He has. Should you forgive other people? Yes, you should. Should you strive to walk in love towards other believers? Should that be the banner by which we are known? Yes, it should be. We must be known by our love. And in so doing, guess what? He's glorified. When we display the fruit of the Spirit, the world says, wow, I wish I had that love. I wish my community had that love. Where does that love come from? It's his love. It's not something that we engineer. It's God the Holy Spirit working this love towards one another. It's the Holy Spirit working in your heart to create that Christ-like love. And in so doing, again, he receives the honor and the glory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this display of your glory at the cross. What glory it is that you demonstrated your love and your righteousness and your holiness and your faithfulness and that Christ conquered Satan and death and atoned for our sin. What wonders are at the cross and what a mission that he accomplished for us by God's grace. Lord, we look to you with all of our faith. You are the pioneer who engineered all of it, and to you belongs all of the glory. And we pray, Lord, in this meantime, while we're waiting, waiting for you to return, that we would obey this commandment and that we would be known by our love, the love that has been poured out in our hearts, that we would display that love to one another, that this church would be a church where Christ is loved and where we love one another. And the children that grow up in this church would see that love and know that love and that that would carry them through a hundred years from now. They'll be thinking about the love that was experienced in this church 80 years before. We pray, Lord, that that would be our legacy. Legacy of truth, legacy of love. Yes, all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.